This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and today I get the distinct pleasure of having, I don't know if he's a competitor <laughs> or a teammate. He's definitely under the same umbrella of the uh, Aftermarket Radio Network. It's Hunt Demarest. He is a uh, accountant. I felt very important to ask questions about money type stuff, tax stuff from our perspective. Uh, he has his own podcast, talks a lot to the shop owners, but he's very, very knowledgeable. I thought it would be a really great uh, episode just to talk about stuff from our perspective in the trenches. So before we get go too far here, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Napa. It's no secret we're facing a technician shortage. Napa Auto Care is addressing that. The free two-year apprentice program offers a variety of training to produce a technician with three ASE certifications. To learn more, members can visit member.napaautocare.com. All right. Thank you, Hunt, for joining me. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Beautiful ad read there. Like a professional. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you reached out, I thought this was a really cool idea because like you said, you know, I have an accounting firm. We specialize in automotive repair shops. And most of the stuff that, you know, I talk about my business, talk about the podcast is all financial related, directed at shop owners, right? So when you said, hey, you know, there's obviously stuff that I talk about that, you know, directly affects technicians as well. But kind of going into that, I think is a really cool topic and excited about it. Nobody's ever explained any of it to me. Just even filling out tax forms when you get hired on. I get a piece of paper and I can claim. I'm not sure how many to claim. Some, you know, and it seems almost political which number to use. You know, some will say the bigger number so they take less out of your paycheck. Your paycheck's bigger. Now you get your money and it's up to you at the end of the year to have the money ready to pay in. And then some people would have you claim zero or one so that your checks are small, but hey, you might get a nice big check at the end of the year. And I think I've just tried to shoot for about the right number of dependents as I really have. And I mean, admittedly, the last few years, I'm always paying in, always. So that would be like, I guess question number one is, hey, I'm taking on this new job or I've been wherever for however however long. And it's, I've always claimed zero. I've always claimed one. I've always claimed eight. Is there a logical thing to do or is it really, it's up to you, man. If you want a low number and maybe get a check at the end of the year, that works or claim big, your checks are going to be bigger. Less taxes taken out. You're going to probably pay in at the end of the year and it could be significant. There's always two camps of this, right? No one's ever advocating, well, get it exactly right so you don't don't owe anything, right? It's always people being like, well, hey, I love getting a huge refund. Everyone thinks, oh, I got this monstrous refund. I got money in my pocket. Like the government gave me money. I always laugh about when people say like, oh, refunds are up this year. I'm like, the refund is not the federal government giving you back their money. They're giving you back your money that they took out, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so that idea is always kind of funny. And then you have on the other side of you know a, a complete libertarian that's like they're not getting a single cent before they absolutely have to. You know, I'll owe money and I'll pay it at the end of the year. You can either pay it all in there now and get it back at the end of the year. And some people say, well, you know, you're giving a tax free loan to the government. Or if you want to go to the other side of it and you want to claim, you know, a bunch of exemptions and not take out that much, that's fine. But you're going to owe taxes at the end of the year if you shoot too low. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, and maybe you're savvy and maybe you like to dabble in investing and you like to do stuff and you want that money throughout the year and and you feel like it's going to work for you, then great. But if you're going to do that, you better be very good with your money because the absolute last thing that you want to do is get involved and get behind on your taxes. You know, hey, you don't pay your credit card. You don't pay other things. They'll yell and scream. You don't pay the Uncle Sam. They get nasty and they get nasty extremely fast. I see from the shop owner side is when a technician does not pay their taxes, the IRS will let you go for a little bit. And then they not only will contact you, but they'll contact your employer. And say, hey, you know what? Matt's behind on taxes. You need to start garnishing your wages. The other end of the spectrum is, you know, claim about nothing, right? Claim single, claim zero. Don't add any dependents. Don't do anything for your house mortgage. And you're most likely going to get a refund at the end of the year. Depending on how many kids you have and stuff like that, it could be a pretty big one. A lot of people say, well, it's a tax-free loan from the government. 
or a tax-free loan to the government. But realistically, what is a savings account paying right now? 0.1%? It's not like there's something out there that's a risk-free investment of 6% that you're missing out on. You really aren't. And in that situation, you know, you're going to get a windfall of cash probably in April when you go to file these things, and you're not going to have to worry about owing. Unless you are very good with your money, I would go to the big refund side. Realistically, if you look at America and you look at people naturally, if you make it, you're going to spend it. And I see this firsthand. I have people that make $50,000 a year. I have people that make millions of dollars a year. How much money they actually have is not directly related to how much money they make. I have people that make a million dollars a year that are absolutely broke because they make a million and they spend 1.1 million. I have people that have never probably made more than $100,000 a year and are millionaires, you know, own real estate paid in full, but it's their own kind of personal spending. And so you just got to be aware of who you are and what you're going to do with that money. And for most people, getting that big refund is going to be the better thing to do. That makes sense. You know, I don't think it's a secret at all that the vast majority of Americans, if they had an emergency... They don't have money for it. Yeah, it was either 2000 or maybe 1000 It's a crazy low number. And the percentage of people that would have to, I know what you're talking about, that had have to go into debt or credit card debt to pay for an unexpected expense is, I think it was like 70, 80%. It was yeah. the majority of America does not have these rainy day funds. And if nothing else, you know, hey, you don't have a rainy day fund, have that tax next tax refund. But usually by the time the tax refund comes, people have already spent it or mentally already kind of put stuff in a shopping cart that they're going to hit click on when they get it. The vast majority of techs, including myself, spend a lot of money on tools and equipment. You could argue whether we quote unquote need them or not, but it's a crazy amount of money. Uh, Some of it is kind of expected. You get a job for a shop and let's just say you're not on the lube rack. You're kind of expected to have, I mean, I hate to put a number on it, right? But thousands of dollars invested in tools. And then you have the vendors, literally the stores, the providers showing up at your shop every week. Got Snap-on on the truck, Matco, Mac. I mean, we could name drop a whole bunch of them. And they show up and they've got the screaming deal. Normally this would go for $10,000, but you know, we're running a promo. And if you sign up for snap on credit or the, the credit, we can knock off more, basically putting it on a credit card, if you will, no card, but with an absurdly high interest rate. Don't even talk about the end number, 30 bucks a week. Forever. I think it must be based on either five or 10 years. It's ridiculous. And in the past, you used to get a deduction for that. Something that maybe made it sting a little bit less. Some of the stuff that you had to pay for out of pocket, some of the uniforms that you had to pay for out of pocket, you know, boots, gloves, stuff like that. You could all write off on your taxes. But major tax law changes in 2018, a lot of things came out. But one of the big things that really affected technicians, and I've seen shops, you know, do stuff to kind of offset this, is they stopped unreimbursed employee expenses, which allowed technicians to write off the cost of their tools. Just like you said, of whether you need the tools or not, or somewhere in between, technicians on average are spending a ton of money on these tools. And now at this point, don't even, you can add them up if you want. Most people probably try to ignore it, but you're not getting any sort of deduction for those tools. I want to talk about the interest piece of this, you know, after this, because that's something that I don't think a lot of people understand as well. You know, if you're sitting here and you're a technician and and you are investing a lot into tools, and, and some of you might already have this in shops, is so of my shops are starting to do a tool reimbursement program. And so instead of saying, hey, you know what, Matt, you're at 35 bucks an hour flat rate. But instead of giving you a raise or something like that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a tool truck allowance. So every single month, I'm going to give 100 bucks to the Snap-on guy, to the Matco guy, to you know whoever your favorite drug dealer is. That's going to give your payments or you know a credit on the Snap-on truck. The shop owner is going to get a deduction for that. No payroll, no payroll taxes, and you know it's kind of sidestepping that issue that we have right now. For the shop owners that have done it, it's been really, really successful. Because think about it: if you want to give 100 dollars to the Snap-on guy right now, you got to make. 140 bucks on payroll, you know, after you pay your taxes and everything like that to pay the snap on guy. So not only are you saving money because your take home pay is not going to the tool truck, 
also your employer, the shop owner, is saving money too because they're not paying payroll taxes either. This is just a straight deduction for them. And so I've started to see stuff that's creative. And if you're sitting here thinking, hey, I'm spending a fortune, I'm due for a raise, or I want a raise, you know, a cool idea to think about. It's like, hey, boss, hey, instead of doing that, why don't you give me some money for the snap on truck? Pay the guy directly. Every shop owner manager has to be feeling the pressure of compensation now more than ever. I mean, it just, it seems like a weak argument. Negotiate against us. If they aren't, they will be because people are coming for them. I've been doing this for, you know, almost 15 years now. And since I've started doing this, there's been a technician shortage, right? This is not a new event. It feels like in the last two years, you know, really since COVID, the technicians have realized what kind of spot they've been in. For the longest time, there was a shortage, but the technicians didn't leverage that. You know, in the last two years, I've seen more cases than any other ones of them, of technicians coming up to their boss and being like, Matt, you're going to pay me 37 bucks an hour flat rate, or I'm going to go to this other shop that is going to. You know, my clients, the shop owners are saying, hey, I need you here because there's no such thing as a good unemployed technician. They're not out there. So I need to pay you whatever it is. And just like you said, if you're a shop owner and you don't realize how important your team is, then you're going to find out pretty quickly when you go in one day and you go from four techs down to three techs and you start a ricochet effect because a lot of people are kind of in this bubble and they're like, I'm making 28 bucks an hour. And one of my clients says that they hate going to, you know, the, we won't name any of the expos, but, you know, they hate taking their technicians to some of these places because then they start talking with other techs and other techs that are kind of around them. And they're like, wait, Matt, what did you say that your guys are making? Holy cow. We don't even make half that, you know, and then you have a really big issue. Yep. I think Dutch Silverstein and I are going to have an episode where we're going to be talking a lot about numbers technicians should know about in, in the shop and shop management wise and what that means to them and to help further determine their value and what they can do to improve their value and stuff like that. But one thing we see regularly on, um, we'll pick on social media primarily, is discussions about what they're getting paid. And they're talking real numbers. The problem is, is it creates some resentments where it's probably not appropriate in that you have to weigh where you live because you can make a hundred grand a year. Cause that seems to be like the new shop owners want a million dollars for their shops. Technicians want a hundred thousand dollars a year. Like that's the brass ring. And there's many techs who are already making that who can barely make ends meet because they live near Washington, DC. They live out on the West coast where the cost of living is outrageous. And then, you know, maybe middle America, certain areas, they're making that 50, 60 grand a year, but they're doing great. And they read this stuff online and they're like, well, I'm worth a hundred grand. I don't know if it's, they realized it so much because I think a lot of them knew it, but felt helpless to do much about it. Or maybe didn't want to put, you know, the owners in that position because depending on how much tact you have when you have that conversation, you know, you're essentially kind of holding them hostage a little bit, which, hey, you are your own business, right? If you're a technician, you're listening to this, you're your business owner yourself, right? You can take your services absolutely anywhere. Hey, you want to move to Hawaii? You can move to Hawaii and you can get a job tomorrow. And we see that stuff all the time. And a lot of people are like, why would they do that? All the stuff that I've done for them. It's like, really, how much stuff have you really done for them? It's more the other way. It's you take away the technicians, you don't have a business. You can take a service horizon away. You can do a lot of things. But if you don't have people fixing cars, you do not have an auto repair shop. Exactly. And it's kind of like organization. It's really close to organism. I will forever not be able to comprehend the inability of individuals inside an organization to not look at everything as an organism of different systems working together to achieve whatever goal or goals. It's hard for an organism to survive when all the systems aren't working properly or at all. And yet that's exactly what we see. Like th this important system, the technicians, you know, the, the chefs in the kitchen, whatever you want to qualify them as, they're just, I guess, overlooked. I don't know. Maybe it's just the kind of that American way. I think it's also kind of like the old school nature of this industry, which is changing. But it was like, hey, don't get your feelings hurt. This is business. Turn hours, do your job, and I'll pay you. Still the way in some shops, I'm sure, but that's changing pretty quickly. It's almost like a misunderstanding of the hierarchy yeah. and what the hierarchy is and means. You know, there absolutely is a hierarchy understanding the position of it and where it relates to everything else. 
uh, it just seems wildly misunderstood by everybody. I mean, <laughs> on all levels of it. Perception is reality, right? You know, we see it from, you know, the bottom to the top, the top to the bottom. The perception that shop owners have of technicians is sometimes accurate, a lot of times skewed. And, you know, the technician old school mentality of, well, hey, my shop owner is charging $150 an hour labor rate. He's paying me 25 All that other money's going in his pocket. Anyone that's went from a technician to a shop owner is like, well, hey, I thought that. But after about a week of owning my own shop, I figured out where all that gap was going, if not more. You got to be compassionate. You got to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And one of the big things I always tell people is, like we were talking about, there's a tech shortage. Everyone wants that next tech. So they're always looking outside. Where is that guy? Where is that guy? And a lot of times they're not looking in their own shop to be like, hey, I was so focused on finding someone else. I'm not taking care of the guys that I do have. So great. I went and found a new technician. Steve quit. So I'm no better off. You know, it's got to take care of your people. That has long been a frustration of mine. You know, they're talking about recruiting new people in. It's like, you better take care of the people you got now. Take care of the veterans because then they become your best marketers. And you get that young person in there. And your veterans are doing very well for themselves. They like the culture of the shop. Now when that kid's thinking about, you know, I'm out of here. I am so sick of all this that they can pull him aside or her aside and say, hey, you know, this is a great place to work. You're just, you're really good at this. You're really good at that. You got to get better about this. You know, you're so close. Just stick with it. You know, so-and-so, they're going to take care of you. I've been here for 15 years. I'm never going to leave. That's how it could be. A lot of times too, it's, you know, just communication, but it goes both ways. You know, shop owners have a ton of stuff on their plate. They can't always sense it. And depending on how big their shop is, they might not even interact with these people. But what I always tell people is like, hey, if you got a problem, the same way a, an owner is going to go talk to a technician, hey, if you got an issue, go talk to your boss. Hey, boss, I want to stay here. I like it. I like the people I work with. I need to address my pay. I need to address my vacation or lack thereof. We need to talk about how we start doing some training. I want to advance my skills. I want to grow my skill set, you know, and being able to say, all right, you know what, Matt, I appreciate that. Hey, you know what? It wasn't I intentionally overlooked you. I want this to be a good place to work. I want you to be happy to be here. I do appreciate you. You're too valuable to be shown up to a shop that you're not appreciated, that you're underpaid on it. You know, there's just so many opportunities out there. Napa Auto Care was top rated in a national survey by consumers of car repair in the chains and independent repair shops category. Ratings were based on courtesy, timeliness, quality, price of repair, and percent of times the problem was fixed on the first visit. Napa Auto Care is the only banner program to make these ratings. Consumers are familiar with the Napa Auto Care brand, and you can benefit. Napa Auto Care has the largest network of independent professional shops in North America with over 17,000 locations. Your independent repair facility can join this network and be supported through Napa's national marketing with the already successful Know How For All campaign, which promotes auto care center-specific offerings. You get support to promote your local repair facility with targeted media and local markets and improving channels. Utilize a full calendar year of promotions with Napa Auto Care Sales Driver promotions that are 100% fully funded by Napa. This includes free email marketing, digital and print point-of-sale materials. Connect to their national presence by co-branding your locally known brand with the already nationally recognized Napa brand. Partner with Napa SmartSign to educate customers with engaging videos that tell the why behind a needed repair or service. You can access and edit digital menu boards, template builder tools, social media feeds, and integrations with other auto care program elements. Offer a credit solution to customers with Napa EasyPay consumer financing. Stay top of mind with your business's name embossed on the credit card. Have an online presence when consumers search for a local repair facility on Napa Online, which generates millions of views per month at no additional cost. If you are interested in partnering with Napa Auto Care and capitalizing on the Napa Know How for All national marketing campaign, contact your salesperson or servicing Napa Auto Care parts store. I think there is kind of a gentleman's agreement between shop owners and that's going to poach texts from each other. Uh, that's almost out the window. Uh, completely out the window, believe me. Shop B runs into Shop A's lead tech at the grocery store. And, hey, how you like it over there? What would, what would it take to maybe lure you over here? And I don't think that would have happened before. You know, if they walked into your shop, open season. 
that is out the door and then entities outside of the auto repair profession, much larger entities. So my favorite example, a friend of mine, he uh, worked for shops forever. And like you said, like he had to buy his or pay for his own uniforms, paid for his own training, you know, pay was eh. He gets approached about a job with a forklift company, a forklift dealership. And it turns out they have multiple locations. And I mean, within months, he's making more than he's ever made fixing cars. He doesn't have to pay for his uniforms. He's got benefits. He never had health insurance before. Now he has health insurance, life insurance. And now he's moved on into the training end of things where now he goes around and trains the other locations on kind of diagnostics on these forklifts that a lot of them, you know, a lot of our ideas of forklifts are the, you know, kind of the propane small ones, 4,000 pounds, 6,000 pounds. Well, geez, no, they got all different sizes and many of them have powertrains out of automobiles, like a pickup truck specifically. You're like, this is just a pickup truck driving backwards. Yes. And he knows more about them than he ever dreamt. He knows more about them than really anybody in the uh, company that builds the forklift. He kind of has this knowledge gained from fixing cars on the independent side of things, having to figure out how stuff works and all that training he went to. We have entities like that that need a fraction of our skill sets that can offer so much more. And that's really what we're up against is we got to raise everything up. Incomes, wages, compensation, benefits, uh, culture. People want to work here, love working here, like working here. And what I like to you know talk to the business owners about is like, hey, you want a business that's obviously profitable. You want a business that's easy to run. At the end of the day, what all business owners want is they don't want to show up and have a problem every single day. Hey, it's a revolving door. I'm always losing technicians. And when I hear a shop owner say, man, I just can't find any help. I'm always losing technicians. People are quitting on me. Look at that guy down the street. His average length of employment is 12 years. He's keeping all of his guys here. Do you think that this is the people that just are quitting off you? Or how are you treating them? This is the same guy that doesn't want to give any holidays out because if you're not there, you're not making them any money. Health insurance is not his problem. That's your problem. Tools, that's your problem. Uniforms, that's your problem. And so I always tell him, it's like, hey, you know what? Yeah, are you going to be paying more and are you going to hurt your profit in the short term? Absolutely. But what you're going to build is you're going to build a culture and environment that's going to be a lot easier to run. And really in the long term, you're going to end up making much more money off of this. I'll have people that will call up and say, hey, so-and-so came and they're making 35. They want to make 37. That's two bucks an hour. And I said, do you realize that that's $4,000 for the entire year that it's going to cost you? How much work does that guy bill out in two days? Eh, maybe 6,000. And I just am silent. And he goes, oh, exactly. Quit being cheap. <laughs> Pay the person, right? They deserve it, right? If they're asking for it, then they probably deserve even more. And not only do you need to probably give that person more money, you need to look at the rest of your team to make sure that you're in line. Because if you're without that technician for one week, you just shot yourself in the foot. You should have just paid them. You know, especially if you're a three-person shop, you lose one of your technician, you just lost a third of your workforce. In a larger scale, you just lost a third of your potential sales for an entire year. If you're a three-person shop, probably doing about a million bucks a year, you're now a $600,000 a year shop. You didn't lose a technician. You just lost $300,000 in sales. You know, And once people start wrapping their head around it, like you said, going back to the organism, like, hey... This is all a team. These are not organizations with 100 employees. Everyone is essential. Everyone is there for a reason. And you got to make sure that you take care of them. When we're talking about stuff like this, and this is maybe pulling on um, your economics background, it screams like Deming type things. Dr. W. Edwards Deming. And kind of his philosophy of management and really getting out of the way of employees. And by that meaning getting out of their way of performing their job as productively, efficiently, and accurately as possible. And not just management itself getting out of the way, but removing obstacles that prevent employees from accomplishing that, as well as obstacles preventing them kind of joy and work. That's something we never really hear is joy and work. And maybe they're not going to be singing the whole time like the seven dwarves, <laughs> but for the most part, they enjoy where they're working. You know, what may that be? But, you know, better lighting, organization, systems that make sense to help them stay as productive as possible, as possible, especially when you're, you know, you've mentioned flat rate a couple of times. You know, I'm 
a horrible one to ask about flat rate because I have really mixed feelings about it. I think most people do. Yeah, I think there's a lot of shops out there that have set themselves up in situation in such a way that flat rate really is a good way of compensation. However, a lot of them have used flat rate as another means of uh, motivation and management. And those are the ones that fail epically and gave it a horrific name. You hit the nail on the head there. It's an accident. <laughs> no, but I mean, you're exactly right. So flat rate can hide a lot of bad ownership, a lot of bad managerial skills because you've already given them the motivation. Do your work, you'll get paid more. Hands off. You know, if you have a good team, they're organized, they're going to knock it out, flag 50, 60 hours a week. They're happy as a clam. You're happy as a clam. Everyone's making money on it. Flat rate also rewards inefficiency. It rewards hoarding of work. It rewards shoddy work. It rewards rushing through jobs. If done without management over a long enough length of time, you're going to have these issues. And then, you know, the other flip side is, well, I can't put my technicians on hourly. They won't do any work. I got plenty of shops that pay all their people salary, pay all their people hourly. And what they need to do is they have good foundations. They say, hey, you know what? They have goals. They know what they need to meet. You know, am I hounding them about hours, hours, hours all the time? No, they know. I know that they're doing their best. I put a high emphasis on quality and that can work as well. Realistically, the model that we're seeing a lot of people go to is kind of a hybrid hourly with a bonus, hourly with a kicker, depending on how many hours that they're selling. Really, the big thing that has been the push recently, if it works, this doesn't work in all shops, is a team-based model. Hey, I need 100 hours out of the shop. I don't necessarily care who is doing this, but you guys need to come together as a team. If done correctly, which is not an easy thing to do, that's going to be the most successful shop for not only the owners, but the technicians. Now you have a vested interest to get that general service guy a little bit more training. Now you have the vested interest to show him how to do that stuff versus saying, get out of my way. I'm going to take an ad job because I know I can flag an easy four hours on that one. You start to want to only do certain jobs that you know you can make time on, mm -hmm. especially if it's like a tiered flat rate system where, you know, it's not really a flat, you know, whatever number, 35 an hour flat rate. It's if you bill 30 hours, it's $30 an hour, 35 hours is 35 an hour 40 you know it just kind of keeps going up and maybe peaks out at whatever 50 i don't know well they only want to do jobs that they know they can kill it on so that they have a chance to hit the 50 hours because that's where they get paid 50 dollars an hour it's kind of a double-edged sword where now they're pumping out work but now they're avoiding this job that nobody wants to do because nobody's going to beat the time on it or they're going to just make time or beat it by a little bit. They're not going to kill it. So nobody wants to do it. And that, you know, and now you're out there barking at them because hey, it's got to get done. It's got to get done. Well, you've set up the rules and now you're expecting intelligent people not to work the system in their favor. We see it all the time, right? It's like, well, hey, then they're gaming it. I'm like, Again, going back to it, like they're their own business. They're not stupid. You know, they're not going to take that break job where they're like, well, I can beat this by 15 minutes. That's not going to get me where I need to be. I need that job that, you know, calls for 12 hours. I know I can do it in six. Give me three of them. But then the tricky part on this too is we talk about this industry and people getting out of this industry. How long can your body physically flag 60 hours a week? And you've seen it. It's like it's physically breaking down people. You got to make sure you're taking care of yourself because the technician that we're seeing right now is, you know, the average tech age is getting up there. And physically, you get to a certain age where it's like you can't do this anymore. You know, it's getting a lot less labor intensive, I think, than what we've seen in the past. You know, a lot of the technology, a lot of the equipment is, you know, a lot more ergonomic and, and saving people's backs and knees. But at the end of the day, this is a physical job and it takes a toll on people. The age used to track very closely to my age. When I got in, of course, it was much older than I was. But boy, I think when I was kind of starting to get into my 30s, it started kind of tracking close to mine. But it's tracked. Now it's ahead of mine. The average age is now older than me. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. And yeah, there are some amazing physical specimens out there, meaning they're in their 50s, maybe even 60s. And they're still turning a lot of hours doing a lot of heavy work. But a, quite a few of them, one twist and it's over. Well, let's talk about that. I think that's a good one because as far as what technicians need to be doing to protect themselves, and this is, you know, goes into the physical and also the financial. If you do not have disability insurance or something like that, you need to get it. AFLAC is 
probably the biggest one out there. Everyone talks about it. Everyone hears about it. It's extremely, extremely cheap. Most of the time, this is something that you would talk to your employer and the employer would come in and offer it for everyone. Um, but if not, you can go out and get disability policies outside of it. If you're thinking about this, talk to the shop owner and say, hey, how about if we have someone come out and talk? Because most of my shop owners that offer disability insurance, generally, they don't even pay for it. Some of them do. It's, it's silly cheap. You know, A lot of them, it's 15 bucks a month or something like that. But you've now protected yourself because I've seen it. You've seen it. I got a technician that gets hurt. Now, if you get hurt at the shop, that's what workers comp is there for. You know, they're going to pay for that. But when you go home, you're not going home and sitting on the couch and sitting in a bubble. You're going out and maybe you're riding your motorcycle. Maybe you're just driving a car. Maybe you're walking with your kid. Anything. If with my job, if I hurt my back, it doesn't matter, right? I don't do anything. I type on a computer. I talk on a phone. Who cares, right? I can be laying in the bed doing that. If you're a technician, you hurt your back, you're done. And the only way to get better is to not do anything for months at a time. And if you don't have that disability insurance, you don't have a paycheck, right? And if that didn't happen at work, now it's coming out of your pocket. So get disability insurance, do it ASAP. It's so cheap that you should not be you know, operating without it. Our shop had a fire a little over a year ago, year and a half ago. We lucked out. Really, no employees, tools, or equipment were harmed. We found out that the uh, shop's insurance really only covers the employees' tools and equipment. I think it was like $5,000. It was absurdly low. It wouldn't even pay for the toolbox. <laughs> like, what is that going to get me? Even the most well-intentioned owner-manager would ever even dream of asking. It's, here's this coverage. Here's everything that's under the roof. It's covered. And then they find out potentially the real hard way of, okay, my policy only covered $5,000 and you have $50,000 worth of tools to replace. Now what? And for how many technicians is their toolbox maybe the most valuable asset that they have? Toolbox, maybe scan tools if the techs have had to buy scan tools, but yeah. If you're an average person and you have a truck and you're driving it out and let's say it's $20,000, you'd be like, I'm not going to drive without insurance on that. That's crazy. What if I crash? What if I total it? I can't afford to pay for this. I have a loan on it. I go back to the Snap-on guy. It's like, hey, your toolbox burned up and Snap-on does not really care. They still want their payment on it. You are a business. You know, Protect yourself, right? We talked about disability insurance. Protect you personally from this. Every year, we have one or two fires in shops. It's just going to happen. I've had shops that are out of business for years, arguing with insurance, arguing with the landlord. And now luckily, you know, the job market's pretty good. You can go work somewhere else. But if you want to stick it out, you're now going three, four months without a paycheck. Hopefully that they have business interruption insurance that can pay for that stuff. But again, you got to make sure that you're protected on your end as well. And just what I looked into it to buy it myself, it's fairly brutal. It's not like Aflac. <laughs> <laughs> that one's a little bit more borderline unattainable. Like, wow. So the last couple fires that I've seen have been caused by impact batteries. I don't have an official cause, but I will just say fairly new vehicle. It was involved in a very, very light collision. So it was at our shop uh, to diagnose parking aid. So the ultrasonic sensors in the bumper. The collision shop had replaced the bumper, painted it, replaced a couple of sensors, and the parking aid still wasn't working properly. That's why I was at the shop. And we ran it in, and per the cameras, can't see it outright. It seems to emanate from that area. The last couple that I've seen, now I had one that happened recently that I don't think was caused by this, but the last two before that were both caused by impact batteries, you know, from an impact gun on the charger, overcharged. Think about the Chevy Volt is on a larger scale. They overcharge, they overheat, they explode. Like you, they had cameras. And they took a look at one of my shops. Now, luckily, it was mostly just smoke damage, but they came and investigated this. They swore it was arson because they could see a fire start here, fire started there, fire started there. They looked at the camera. Sure enough, impact battery was charged on top of someone's toolbox, exploded, went over, set on fire a trash can. That blew up some brake clean bottles. Those brake clean bottles went somewhere else and started to fire. And the fire inspector was like, I would have bet my life this was arson. And I saw this video and it's like, holy cow. And I'm not sure what you guys do. I have a couple of shop owners that they do not allow people to charge the batteries overnight. I have some people that they put all the battery chargers into one of those fire safe cabinets. We don't go quite that far. Unplug all the battery chargers. Yeah, the big thing on it is a general battery that's in good health shouldn't really explode. But 
you aren't always just placing that, you know, half inch impact down nicely. Sometimes those get slammed. Sometimes those get chucked. Sometimes they get used at hammers, right? I'm guilty of being like, I don't have anything. I'll just whack it with the bottom. Milwaukee builds these things pretty good. But yeah, I mean, you get one of those cells a little bit split or something like that. I had just driven the vehicle in to the shop. Uh, It was in the middle of winter, January, cold. And uh, I think we're going to get some snow. So you park it inside so the snow plows can plow at the parking lot. And the battery's proximity to the um, fuel line, which is uh, plastic. I think it just got really hot, melted the fuel line. I had just driven the vehicle in, so it's pressurized. And now it's got a source. If you've ever popped a fuel line off or seen somebody take a fuel line off with a pressurized um, system... It can pump a fair bit of fuel. And so now it's kind of got a source. And once it gets rolling, as horrible as it was, it was fairly, it was kind of amazing to watch on camera. How it kind of went from not much to, wow, uh, just a fireball almost. Think about all the electronics that are on every car. Like you said, it was in there for you to diagnose a sensor on it. I mean, these things are just filled with electronics now. You know, where in the past, the only risk of fire that you had is, is the fuel tank going to leak? Is the fuel rail going to leak? That's it. You know, there was nothing on there. Now it's like there's computers, there's wires everywhere that, you know, you get a little crimp, you get anything. Another shop I had worked for uh, many years ago, I guess as I kind of where I started, it was a carbureted minivan an old older chrysler minivan that was carbureted and one of the techs was uh torching on the exhaust and then you know it's pretty close to five o'clock so they shut everything off like they should and left for the life of me i will never be able to answer this i lowered the vehicle i have no idea why i did it because i was ready to just leave lock up and go i lower the vehicle and i kid you not there had to been a six inch flame coming out of the top of the carburetor so he had the air filter and everything off of the carburetor and he's torching underneath and it must have been just enough or a spark or something lit vapors from the carburetor and it was just sitting there burning. I'm not saying the building would have burnt down. We probably would have had a fair bit of um, smoke damage, but what in the world? <laughs> it's like, man, you got to have us, you almost have to have a shop operating procedure where Vehicles that have been torched on or welded on or batteries charged where, man, somebody just take a look at them quick before you go. Because I've heard about interiors getting lit by uh, welding in proximity to carpets or seats or whatever. and Just undercoating, right? You know, even if you go, like you weld, like I was welding something on my car the other day. And a feet away, you know, you got undercoating that starts to melt. It's like you're throwing so much amp through that. And that's like what's underneath. And, you know, the crazy thing is on the unibody cars, it's like, hey, what is in between there? And then you look up in the trunk and the trunk is now on fire. All kinds of stuff. But, you know, going back, if you're a technician, it's like, you know, if they're not doing stuff safely or you have other people in the shop or you're in a shop where the shop owner allows the stuff not to be done safely, it's more or less could come back and bite you because, hey, if Matt doesn't care and he's smoking a cigarette while he's welding next to this Chrysler with a carburetor, that catches on fire. Now you don't have a shop to go to either. God, that used to be a thing. <laughs> I never smoked, but I know shops that I used to work at, the older guys, not necessarily. It wasn't always the older guys, but everybody was, when I started out, everybody was older than me. So, but yes, cigarette hanging out of their mouth. It's insane. Yeah. Cigarette out of your mouth, spray an old school brake clean, which would actually catch on fire. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like watching old night tonight shows or whatever they're all smoking and it's like such a different environment nowadays well it's like you know when you used to go into a restaurant and be like oh we're going to go into the non-smoking section that was divided by a booth with nothing else from the smoking section it's like all right this makes sense getting back on track one of the things that before i forget i want to talk about interest rates you had brought up a good point about interest rates you know and i just did an episode on interest rates and everyone hears about interest rates but people don't realize Especially if you're when you kind of jog my memory and you talk about some of the snap on financing, I see a ton of stuff. Zero percent financing, right? Same as cash, zero percent financing. So a couple of things on interest rates is hey, when they say, Well, we're gonna be able to save you money because we're gonna be able to put this on, you know, in-house financing. Do you really think that they just want you to save money? Or do you think that they have a vested interest on it? A tremendous vested interest. And even the stuff that you'll see is, you know, well, hey, they're gonna put me on this credit. But it's nine months, same as cash, 0% financing. Why wouldn't I do this? 
And I'd agree. If they have something like that where it's same as cash, then do it. If you can pay it back in that time period. Because what people don't realize is if you read that fine print, let's say you buy a $10,000 toolbox and they say, well, you can pay me cash right now or you can do 0% financing for 12 months. Every single person is going to say, well, I'm going to do 0% for 12 months. But what they don't tell you is you don't have to pay them a thousand bucks a month. They'll let you pay less. Hey, Matt, pay us what you want. But what happens when you hit that 12 month? And even if you owe them a dollar, right? If you've given them $9,999, that interest rate is 20%. Let's say it's, it's usually not very good. You all know that you now owe them an extra two grand because they go back and they say, well, you actually accruing 20% interest this entire year. If you give us all your money back within a year, you don't owe us anything any anymore. But if you go to 366 days with any sort of balance, now you get hammered with all the interest. And that's the big thing that a lot of people don't understand. Oh, it's 0%. Oh, it's same as cash. It's If you can pay it in that time frame, then great. If you cannot, you're in big trouble. right? And if you do have something like this, if you have higher interest rates right now, Go shop it around, right? You can do balance transfers on credit cards. You can do a lot of different things. Interest rate is the silent killer that is just sapping people dry. If you have a high interest rate credit card right now, get it to something else. Go to creditcards.com or something. You can compare all of this stuff. You know, interest is the biggest killer because you're not getting anything out of it. And, you know, the scary thing is, is they had to start doing this on credit cards because most people don't understand this, but when you get a credit card statement, you have a minimum payment. And now they got to put that really you know, scary box on there that says, if you make the minimum payment, you will pay us back in an X amount of years. 23 years. Think about it. It's like if you buy something for $1,000 on a credit card, it's going to go up because interest rates are going up. But usually it was 19 to 23%. I'm guessing it's mid-20s now. So you just pay 25% more for this, right? And I preach this to shop owners all the time that run their business off of credit cards. Regardless of what you think as a technician, some of your shop owners are making no money, right? They're the lowest paid employees. And I always tell them of like, hey, you marked that part up 25%. You bought on a credit card that you can't afford it. You're actually selling that part at a loss once you factor in the interest. But you know, if you're a technician, you're no different. Make sure that you're handling that stuff. Uh, and like I said, there's so many options out there with a couple of click, you can transfer it. Oh, you got a city card, giving crazy interest rates, go transfer it over to a Chase card. You know, just got to be very careful with that because a lot of people that I see aren't in a ton of debt, right? This should be, it's a pretty big blanket statement. Not like you got $100,000 of credit card debt, but you got 10,000, you got 12,000, you got this nagging amount that you just can't seem to get away from. And it's like, before you worry about trying to invest in the stock market or you go out and you want to buy Bitcoin, go pay off that credit card. Because what I tell people is, hey, Matt, what if I told you I could give you 20% guaranteed rate of return on your money? I have an investment. There's no downside. It's a guaranteed 20% rate of return. Everyone's going to jump on it. Interest rate for a savings accounts 0.1%. All you got to do is pay off your credit card. Look at your percentage rates that you're paying on stuff. And that's your rate of return. And if you're sitting here listening to this and maybe you like toys, right? You like toys, you like four-wheelers, you like side-by-sides, you, you got it all, but they're all financed. And you have finally woken up and you said, I need to get out of this because at some point I want to retire. Where do I start? I always start with the highest interest rate. Knock that one out first. More or less, sometimes balances come into consideration, but usually I'm just going to look at straight interest rates. I got a truck loan, that's 4%. Leave it alone. Don't pay it off early. I got you know this other payment at 6%. That's fine. Leave it alone. It's not too bad. I got this credit card, 16%. That's what we're hitting first. And everyone you know talks about, oh, I'm going to pay off my house early. You know, There's a lot of economics behind that that are like, you're going to pay off a house with 3.5% interest? Like mentally, I get it, right? You're going to own it. It's the largest balance, but yeah. Yeah, but from a financial perspective, you're getting a 3.5% rate of return on your money. And even worse, because you have, you know, some of that's tax deductible, start hitting the higher interest rates and start getting rid of those is, is going to be your best course of action. Yeah. And when you get to pay it off, set it aside, hide it. I don't think you want to close the credit card. You don't want to have a credit card that has an annual fee unless you spend a bunch of money. If you spend a bunch of money and you're smart with credit cards and you know how to work the points, some of them can pay for it. I use uh, Amex. Amex is my personal preference on it, but all Amex have fees. I spend enough where it makes sense. Most of these credit cards have different perks on them. You know, look at the fine print for it. A lot of them will give you credits for Uber. A lot of them give you credits for, you know, any number of things. Make sure that you're utilizing that. 
But if you're sitting here and you want to increase your credit score, one of the biggest factors of your credit score is credit utilization. Banks want to see Matt have the ability to spend 40000 right? He's got four credit cards with $10,000 balances, but you only carry $2,000 balance. That is going to give much better credit than me that only has one credit card with a $2,000 limit that I've spent 2000 on. Get that paid off. And then a lot of times gets referred to as debt snowball. Let's just say you're, you're doing the minimum payments on all your cards, except for one that you're just as much as you can muster every month hitting it. So let's just say all the other ones, the minimum payments are a hundred bucks a month and you got three of them. And then you got the, the, the high interest rate one, the 23, 24, 25% interest one. And the minimum payment is maybe a hundred dollars as well, but you're going to throw everything you got at it. So let's just say you can muster 200 a month. When you're done with that, park that card, don't put anything on it or keep the balance extremely low. Now take that $200, pick one of the other three, and now you're not paying 100, 100 a month on it or 200 a month. You're paying 300 a month and kill it. Don't close it, but kill it. Put that aside. And now you're paying you know, an extra hundred on top of that. So now it's 400 a month against that second one and then 500 a month on the last one. And now you don't have credit card debt anymore. And you could for, you know, reasonably maybe take that money. And if the only other thing you have is your house payment, I suppose you could throw it at your principal, but kind of like you're saying, I'd rather have that in the bank. Your interest rate is yeah, such that it may not justify such action. Yeah. Number one thing of paying down debt. First thing is make sure that you have cash reserves. First and foremost, it bugs me. I see it on the business side. A lot of people start making money. As soon as people start making money, they start trying to pay down debt, right? They try to, you know, write their past transgressions. But then what ends up happening is if something bad happens, you don't have a savings account to fall back on. So the credit card goes back up. Right now we're caught in this vicious cycle. And so what I always tell people is first and foremost, I'm getting my cash reserves. I'm getting that rainy day fund set aside before I'm even trying to tackle my debt. Now that I got, you know, whatever it might be, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 set aside, I say, all right, that's here. This is so I don't have to go back down that path again. Now I'm starting to attack my debt. The good thing about personally is there's no number that's too high, right? For businesses, there's liability. But yeah, I mean, you want to at least have three to six months of operating expenses, meaning something happens. Hey, economy's looking really good right now. We don't have to worry about inflation. We don't have to worry about interest rates. Nothing bad is ever going to happen anytime soon. What happens if we have a slowdown? What happens if monkeypox turns out to be the real deal and we all get shut down again? You need to make sure that you have the reserves for yourself, for your family to make sure you can get by. Because again, like we said, if you don't have those reserves, then your reserve is the city card, the chase card that has money on there, but that's 20, 30% interest. If you had that $10,000 sitting there, your house payment's 1000 a month, you've got six months easy with extra money. And like you said, more yet for every expense, electric, power, food. I mean, the big thing here is, you know, you need a budget. You need to live within your means. You know, the Dave Ramsey approach is you don't use a credit card because you're not spending money that you don't have. This kind of goes back to our original question about philosophy on refunds. You got to recognize what kind of person you are. Credit card is the best thing in the entire world if done correctly. You're literally getting paid to spend money. I never carry a balance on my credit card. I'm getting points back on every single dollar that I spend. And also, if something happens, if someone steals my identity, they run up the credit card. I say, I don't care. American Express, figure out who that was. That wasn't me. I'm not giving you guys any money. If you're using your debit card, you'll get your money, but they're going to figure out what happened there. Then they get it back. And we might have to get a dictionary so everybody knows what budget means. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one that I use on a shop owners, but it, it works for anyone as, as far as savings. And a lot of shop owners are not good at saving money either, right? So don't think, oh, I'm a technician. My boss is doing a better job. Depending on who you work for, I could probably tell you if they are or they aren't. But what I always tell people, especially people that don't have a good way of saving money, is start with a specific dollar amount that you want to start setting aside. You could do this on a weekly, maybe more than a week, but I'd like to keep it short because I like to keep it a repeatable thing and also a smaller dollar amount. Every single week, transfer $20 into a savings account, maybe preferably at another bank that's a little bit harder to touch. And like clockwork, every single Monday, 20 bucks is going to come out of your account and that's going to start to grow. And once you forget about it, you're going to say, all right, that's nothing. All right, make it 25, make it 30. The big thing here is a lot of people try and jump out of the gate. 
right? They try and be a hero and they say, I'm going to do 500 bucks every single Monday. They do it for two weeks and they're like, ah, crap, the car payment came up. I can't do it. So start with something incremental that you can grow and you'll be kind of you know surprised at what you can set aside. Wow, man. I really do appreciate you coming on. You got any final thoughts really or... Try and be smart with your money. You know, take it from me. I've seen more financials, more tax returns than you know most people would care to look at. And what I always tell people is it's not how much money you make, it's how much money you spend. The truly wealthy people, and wealthy doesn't mean you're a billionaire, right? It means that you can retire at some point and not have to worry about things. Those are not the people that made the most money. Those are the people that live below their means. Right? They bought the stuff that they needed, not the stuff that they wanted. And maybe your 30s, your 40s, maybe you don't have the nicest car. That other guy's got a 2500. Hey, you're still driving that old you know, Tacoma. But when you become 50 years old, when you become 60 years old, now you have options. Now you can retire if you want to. Maybe you don't want to retire. You don't want to be that old curmudgeon that's in your shop that's 71 years old and is pissed off because they have to keep on working because they did not set themselves up. Start early. Compound interest is a magical thing. You know, be educated on this stuff. Don't get discouraged. Don't put yourself your head in the sand. You know, try and chip your way out of it. I guess that's all. That's all you can do, right? Yeah, man. Appreciate you having me on me here. Hopefully, it was helpful. Hopefully, there was some insight in those ramblings, huh? No, thank you again, sir. No problem. Thank you, everyone, to listening. Be sure to try to check into Hunt has his own podcast. There is a lot of stuff that does translate very well directly to text, speaks to text, has a great one on inflation. Really, no BS. It's must listen. And another one on tech productivity, which, you know, it is aimed at the shop uh, and shop management, but it's a good listen. Uh, helps get your uh, head wrapped around how important you are to the to business, really are. And check out the Aftermarket Radio Network. Thank you so much to Napa for the sponsoring. Any questions or ideas, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Podcast at gmail.com. And until later, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.